It's time for Dishing Up Nutrition with licensed nutritionist Darlene Kavist. Each week, Darlene explains the connection between what you eat and how you feel. Stay tuned to hear practical, real-life solutions for healthier living through good nutrition. Dishing Up Nutrition is brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones. Looking for fun and feeling groovy. Good morning. Welcome to Dishing Up Nutrition. I'm Kara Carper, licensed nutritionist and host of Dishing Up Nutrition today. Our frequent listeners, who we really do consider family, know that we tell you over and over about the harmful effects of eating sugar. Some of you might even hear our voices in your head when you reach for that afternoon cookie. Maybe you're going into the freezer at night to get your favorite ice cream. Well, today we're stepping it up even more. We have an extra special treat. No, not a sugar treat, but we have the author of The Case Against Sugar joining us via phone from California. Author Gary Tobbs has spent the past three years researching and working on this amazing book. And I really believe no one has worked harder on or better understands the role that sugar plays in our diet and in our health. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Carolyn Hudson, registered dietitian and today's co-host of Dishing Up Nutrition. This show is brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness, a company providing life-changing nutrition education and life-changing nutrition counseling. In our menopause seminar, we often quote Dr. Christine Northrup, author of The Wisdom of Menopause, So we are so pleased to see her praise of Gary Taub's book, The Case Mm -hmm. Against Sugar. That's right. And Dr. Northrup said uh, in the book, I am grateful beyond words for Gary Taub's courageous and meticulous documentation of the information in this book. If you apply it, it will quite literally save your life. We're just so honored to have Gary on the show today. Yes, yeah. I know this book took three long years to write, Gary. Um, so first, I wonder if you could share with us two things. Why did you feel so fully compelled to dig so deeply into the harm the sugar industry has caused to people all over the world? And second, please share with us what has happened to people's health in the past century. Okay, well, uh, yes, good morning. Um, so I've been reporting the subject for uh, as an investigative journalist uh, beginning in the late uh, mid-90s, actually, and uh, just came to this revelation. I, I, over the course of the century, we've been living longer and longer, but we've also developed uh, chronic diseases at an unprecedented rate, even independent of our age. So today... You know, a third of all, over a third of all adults are obese. Two thirds are overweight. One in uh, eleven are diabetic, which is a, a remarkably high number. And and one in four or five people will die of cancer. And we know that all these diseases have dietary nutritional triggers. That it's not just bad luck or bad genes, although they play a role, but it's also something in our diet that's causing it. And I just felt. Uh, for I mean, when you look at the history, and I approach the subject historically, uh, you know, sugar consumption had always been the prime suspect, particularly for diabetes, and we kept dancing around it. Nobody was 
digging into the data to ask, is there really a chance that sugar causes these diseases? And the case I'm making in this book, the case against sugar, is that, you know, it was the prime suspect. It should still be the prime suspect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, so if you're listening and you're a person who loves to understand the history of why two-thirds of adults are overweight or one in 11 are diabetic, you know, this is the book for you. Gary not only dug deep into the history of diabetes, but he wants everyone to see how it's affecting people today. So, Gary, we're wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the connection with diabetes and kidney failure, diabetes and lower limb amputation. And, you know, in your book, you talk about how how much money is being spent in healthcare dollars with just the diabetic drugs and devices. Well, this is, you know, diabetes is, uh, it's a, uh, and when we're talking about diabetes, and when I use the word uh, in our discussion, I'm mostly discussing uh, type 2 diabetes, which is the, the, the form that, that associates with age and with uh, overweight. So the older we get, the heavier we get, the more likely we are, and it represents 90 to 95% of all diabetes cases. And uh, the, the, the side effects are pretty awful to begin with. As you mentioned, kidney failure, uh, eyesight deteriorate, nerve damage, uh, tooth decay, um, foot ulcers and, and, and gangrene that could lead to amputations. Um, six in every ten lower limb amputations in adults in America are due to diabetes today. And we have a dozen classes of drugs that are now available to the, for the disease. Um, the estimate uh, for the direct cost of obesity and diabetes to the healthcare burden in America is now uh, a, a billion dollars a day. A day, a billion dollars wow. a day. That is an amazing statistic. It is, and it's 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 an interesting double-edged sword. This number, because yeah, I often think of it as, boy, this is our healthcare system can't sustain this kind of cost. That's right. Simultaneously, this is a billion dollars a day that's going to profit. Uh, and pay for physicians, for hospitals, for pharmaceutical companies. So there's, there's both. We we have to figure out what's triggering this disorder, or why we have this in effect a, a non-infectious plague of this disease. But simultaneously, it's just great business for the mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies. So they're not all that motivated to solve a problem that's bringing in this kind of money. Um, the other issue that. I discuss at length in this book is if as you move towards overweight obesity and diabetes, your risk of every other major chronic disease increases. So if you're diabetic, you have an increased risk of heart disease, of stroke, of cancer, of dementia. So whatever it is that's causing diabetes, causing this disease, is at least increasing the risk of these other uh, uh, terrible yes. diseases. Absolutely. We see that in our office all the time, that is for sure. The other thing that I, I remember reading in your book is the amount of um, the increase in diabetes cases, I think it was, what, 800% or 900%? Uh, well, it depends what we're talking about, obviously, but um, since the 19, late 1950s, if you look at the data from the Centers for Disease Control, diabetes prevalence in this country has increased roughly 
700%. Um, that's a shocking number. Ab- that's why really I, shocking. Yeah, that's why I use a phrase like uh, uh, plague to describe plague. it. Imagine if, <laughs> it is like a plague. Imagine if 50 years from now, one in 11 Americans had multiple sclerosis or muscular dystrophy or... Uh, yeah, any one of these relatively rare diseases today, we would be overrun with scientists and research committees trying to understand what had happened. And because diabetes is associated with overweight and obesity, and because our medical system thinks it's caused by that, rather than you know investigate, rather than interrogate our assumptions about this disease, ask if we, we the scientists, the public health community, have made a mistake. The we blame the patients, yeah. ultimately, or maybe the food industry for making food that's just too delicious, for, so we can't say no. Yeah, it would seem that, you know, we, the people, you know, are really in big trouble with diabetes and other health problems, as you just said. But that hasn't always been the case, right? I mean, what has dramatically changed our health and how did we get here? Well, and that's that's the story I'm 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 investigating in this book. Um, you can go back. I did. You go back to the 19th century, and um, so diabetes is a relatively easy diagnosis to make because it's such an awful disease, particularly before we had insulin available to treat it. Um, and you go back to the hospital records in the 19th century, and you find that this disease was exceedingly rare, or if people had it, they certainly weren't ending up in the hospital, and that's hard to imagine, and I tried to you know, speak to ex-medical historians who might help me figure that out, but you could see from the mid-19th century onward this steady, slow, and increase in diabetic cases, and then in other uh, populations of people from all around the world, whenever populations, their diets were industrialized. The term that is often used is westernized. When they start eating the way we eat here in America, you would see, boom, this explosion following of diabetes and obesity. Mm-hmm. Gary, and, I'm so sorry to interrupt. We, you know, we ask you a question and then we have to interrupt <laughs> you to take a quick commercial break. I'm sure you're probably used to that, but we'll, we'll come back and we want to hear more about that um, in just a minute. You're listening to Dishing Up Nutrition Brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness. And, you know, like we're talking about 50 years ago, one in eight American adults were obese. Today, more than one in three are obese. Why this increase? Could it be the sugar became the mainstay of breakfast, first in fruit juice, then in sugar-rich breakfast cereal? Well, you know, according to the information that Gary Tobbs shared in the case against sugar, 20 years ago, Americans started drinking nine gallons of fruit juice every year, and that's like drinking an additional eight pounds of sugar per year. So, you know, we have a wonderful nutrition for weight loss program that can help you get back on track if you are having an issue with sugar. You can either sign up online. You can call our office at 651-699-3438. You can go to our website, weightandwellness.com. Carolyn's going to talk a little bit more about that Nutrition for Weight Loss program when we come back in just a minute. 
At the end of a busy day, it can be tough to get motivated to get out the door for another obligation. And once you're cozy at home, who wants to go back out? But you still want to work on ways to feel better, and nutritional weight and wellness can make that easier. Right now, there are popular Balanced Foods for Balanced Moods classes available online, so you can balance your time, too. This class shows you how to use real food to reduce negative moods, increase energy, improve memory, and manage stress. And did I mention it's delicious? Get the same breakthrough coursework taught by the experts at Nutritional Weight and Wellness, but from your home and on your schedule. Learn how to feel better with the Balanced Foods for Balanced Moods class and do it in your slippers and sweatpants. Sign up today. Go to weightandwellness.com and register in a snap. It's online learning from Nutritional Weight and Wellness that helps you balance your time, too. Go to weightandwellness.com. What are you waiting for? Welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. I'm Carolyn Hudson, registered dietitian, and I'm here with Kara Carpenter, or Carper, sorry, Carpenter. I don't know what I have on my mind. (laughs) Uh, Licensed nutritionist and a very special guest, author Gary Tobbs, who wrote The Case Against Sugar. It tells an amazing story of how the sugar industry has very diligently increased sugar sales throughout the world, while rates of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and obesity have steadily increased. The American Heart Association recommends that we consume no more than six teaspoons of sugar daily. Now, that's pretty low, right? Most people have a lot more. So how do you stop that giant sugar cube from rolling over you? At Nutritional Weight and Wellness, we believe you you can. You can do this with education, information, and support. Do you want to turn your health concerns around? Or jo- uh, We would invite you to join our Nutrition for Weight Loss program the week of April 10th at several of our locations or anytime online. So, like you said, Carolyn, we have a special guest, Gary Tobbs, on the line, and you know, before break, we started talking about what has changed with, you know, the increase in health problems, diabetes, heart disease. How did we get here? Gary, I know you're in the middle of a thought. Could you please, um, you know, finish what you were going to say? <laughs> okay. Well, the main point was uh, you can see, again, diabetes in the U.S. increasing uh, virtually absent uh, pre-1850, and then it slowly starts to increase, and then it kind of explodes in the 20th century, and you can see the same transition happening in populations all over the world whenever they go from their traditional diet to our diet, and then, you you know, it, it coincides almost perfectly, and in almost every case with this increase in sugar consumption, and in the U.S., I mean, we, we just tend to forget that the 200 years ago, sugar was bought in, in barrels in the public's and it was expensive, and it was for the adults and the family, and it was a treat. It was a luxury, right? <laughs> yeah, and then with the Industrial Revolution, you get the, then the 1840s, you get the candy industry and the ice cream industry and the chocolate industry kicking up. In the 1870s, you get the soft drink industry. Um, by 1920, we're consuming, you know, per person, on average, 100 pounds of sugar per year. That's a almost a 20-fold increase from uh, 100 years before. And then, as you guys know, the fruit juices 
were virtually non-existent until the 1930s, and sugary cereals come in in the 1950s, and finally by the 1960s, you know, we're consuming roughly every three hours what we would have consumed in sugar, what we would have consumed um, 150 years earlier once a week. Wow. And our bodies are just getting, <clears throat> and particularly our livers are getting pummeled with this substance that they just didn't, never historically had to handle. Um, and, you know, there's just an enormous amount, although still not enough scientific evidence that this is, um, that we just can't deal with it. Our bodies can't deal with this constant stream of sugar that's being, you know, usually drank but eaten and consumed mm-hmm. from morning till dessert mm-hmm. before yeah. we go to bed. It's such a good reminder. I know you had, in your book, You, I think you mentioned, we were having sweets on average, you know, the, a can of Coca-Cola once a week would be the equivalent of what was regular for sweets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, you know, we wake up in the morning, you have orange juice and there's sugar in your cereal. And if you're eating a low-fat, fruity yogurt, there's sugar in your yogurt. And then you take a, you go to work and you take a break at work and you have a, a soft drink or fruit juice and, and lunch. You know, again, we just got away from drinking water or milk, which were our beverages, mm-hmm. right, available right. to every beverage we consumed had to have sugar in it. Mm-hmm. And you would expect it to be harmful, and because of some pretty bad science by the nutrition community and the sugar industry's diligent work, as you noted, we just decided we were going to ignore all this. Mm -hmm. You know, when you started talking about traditional cultures and how things go south when the Western diet is introduced, um, I just have a comment, you know, over the past few years, Whenever we attend our annual professional nutrition conferences, it seems that speakers often will bring up the negative effects that sugars had on the Pima Indians of Arizona. And I've always been fascinated by that story. Gary, would you mind just sharing the Pima story with our listeners? I think it really illustrates what sugar's done to everyone. Well, and that's, it should have illustrated what sugar had done also to the researchers at the National Institutes of Health. But they, they, again, they were kind of... <laughs> plugged into their own little world. So in the the Pima used to be the most affluent Native American tribe back if you go up until the 1860s or so. And then um, for a variety of reasons, they uh, suffered through periods of famine and then the usual uh, uh, terrible poverty that afflicts the Native American populations in our country. And then uh, in the 1930s and early 1940s, uh, Doctors are looking at levels of diabetes in the Pima, and it seems to be, again, exceedingly low and certainly no higher than any other population in the country. And then in the, during the war years, World War II, which happened again with all our Native American populations, the men were drafted into the Army and fought in the wars, and often the women were working in munitions factories, and so they were sort of quickly and dramatically westernized. And even though they had access to the Western diet, the poverty had kept it pretty much at bay. And then post-war, by the 1850s, you've got physicians commenting on the obesity in this tribe. And uh, one study I saw that that you know, virtually every child over the age, everyone over the age of 12 was obese. Hmm. Um, 
a bit of an exaggeration, but that's how the physician described it. And then um, still relatively, you, know, you don't see the signs of diabetes. You don't see diabetes patients in the, 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 the Indian Affairs hospitals. And in the mid-1960s, the NIH sends a trio, National Institutes of Health sends a trio of researchers out to Phoenix to study actually um, arthritis in hot, dry climates, and they do blood tests on 1,000 Pima, uh, members of the Pima population, and roughly one in two have diabetic levels of blood sugar. And this is stunning to them. And in fact, they go back to Washington and they report it. And the NIH sends, immediately sends them back out to set up a research laboratory that's still in existence today studying this population. But the point is the hospitals are still relatively empty. Uh, you don't see the, the, the side effects, the amputations, the blindness that you would expect. And they think maybe um, diabetes is just a much more benign disease in Native Americans. Interesting. And, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and then in the 1970s, boom, it just explodes, and the hospitals are full of diabetic Pimas with all these horrible complications of this disease, and they realize it's, it's not benign. It was just a new disease. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. You, you see the same pattern in Native American populations, again, well, throughout the country, First Nations people, then Canada, and when you look at what changes in the diet, when they suddenly become westernized, you know, more than any other change is this, the sweets, the sodas, the soft drinks, the, the candy, the sugar. Well, on that thought here, listeners, think about this. If sugar had the ability to take a healthy group of people and turn them into a disease-ridden group, what is doing it to you if you're struggling with these things? Is it that do you have more fat around your middle, more aches and pains, fragile bones, heart disease, or even fatty liver? Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about chapter one in Gary's book, which is one of my favorite chapters. But you're listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. Yesterday, I had a client who I'd encouraged to take our 12-week nutrition for weight loss series. And she checked in with me and said, I gained eight pounds. And I said, that's great. He probably gained it through muscle mass, first of all. But, you know, why did I suggest that she take the Nutrition for Weight Loss program? The number one reason was not to lose weight, but so that she could stop following her low-fat starvation diet, which probably caused, um, was one factor in her osteoporosis. She really needed a weekly class to be reminded to eat lunch and protein and good healthy fat. And she said, oh, you know, there's so much information in these classes. I'm going to sign up again because I feel great. And I can't wait to have a bone density test to see how much it's improved. I don't want to be an old lady in a nursing home with a broken hip. I want to go skiing without being afraid of falling. So these are all just, it's a great testimonial. And we will be back in a minute. Well, welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. As a nutrition education and counseling center, we at Nutritional Weight and Wellness love and appreciate the investigative work author Gary Tobbs did to write The Case Against Sugar. As a dietitian, however, it is really difficult for me to understand how the sugar industry put money before the health of people. No wonder people are confused about nutrition especially about what to eat for weight loss. So they just give up, I think, sometimes. 
Unfortunately, since they continue to eat sugar and all those processed carbs, they are faced with diabetes and heart disease. So what do you do? What to do? What to believe even? I've been a dietitian for a long time and kind of been around the block. And now that I teach nutrition for weight loss, I see the health results. I see people with fewer aches and pains, more energy, better blood sugar numbers, and of course, good weight loss. Really, there is still hope for everyone out there. What do you have to lose? These are great classes, and they're going to help you give up sugar and supply you with the energy and well-being that you are looking for each and every day. If you want to have more information about our classes or have questions, call 651-699-3438. And Gary, um, I have a personal experience in, in kind of this whole thing that you were talking about with the Pima Indians. Back in the 70s, I was living in northern um, Manitoba in northern Canada, and um, I witnessed what happened to the native population there. I couldn't believe the amount of diabetes, heart disease, and obesity in that small little community. And I talked to some of the elders, and they said, no, it didn't used to be like this at all. You know, it wasn't until we got uh, food in from the south hmm. that... Uh, these things started to happen. But um, I, you know, so I can, I totally uh, loved that part of your book and reading about that and kind of this whole law of adaptation. It doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, we changed our diet basically overnight and we have health consequences, obviously. Well, then that's the thing. So here, you know, uh, most of us, uh, we had uh, hundreds of years to, sort of slowly adapt to the amount of uh, sugar in our diet, and we still can, clearly can't deal with it. And there are problems, as I discuss in the book, even uh, I think a lot of what we're seeing today, I mean, clearly we're being born predisposed to get fatter and more diabetic than every population in history. And you have to ask the question, what's happening, you know, in, in effect in the womb of a pregnant mother that could be causing that phenomenon. But then these other populations, like you just described in Canada, um, as though they were, you know, the, the modern American diet was just airlifted and dropped onto them over the course of 20 or 30 years. And it's, again, a similar to the Pima, where suddenly their diets are full of sugar when they never were before, and then they see these diseases manifest almost overnight, and you, you witness what, what you saw. I think the more, the, the question is, you know, one question is, why, why, why didn't we notice this before, and why don't we stop once we're clear? We always knew that, that sugar was... Right. Again, what we, to do? What we to wonder do. that same question on a daily <laughs> daily basis. I you know, I want to get into um talking about the case against sugar in chapter one. The the title was Drug or Food. It reminds me of well, a lot of people I know, especially particularly clients at Nutritional Weight and Wellness, they often say sugar has a drug like hold on them. If they open up a bag of candy, they can't stop eating until it's all gone. And 
I was thinking about a specific client. She said it was fine to share her story, but she's someone who has miniature candy bars stashed in her kitchen drawer, her desk drawer at work, the glove compartment in her car, on her nightstand. So it almost seems like sugar is an addictive drug for my client, similar to cocaine, alcohol, or tobacco. And, you know, if you're listening, you maybe can relate to this. Right, Carolyn? Yeah, yeah. In in your book, The Case Against Sugar, you talked about how sugar has been used to take, um, used to take people uh, psychologically out of a boring, hard life and how sugar gives people the reason to live. You know, that... It, that it, it's that might be the only joy for them. So I have ne- I never really knew about how people who were forced into slavery or poverty use sugar as an addictive sub- substance. So it would really appear that there is a connection to sugar addiction and drug and alcohol addiction. I was captivated, Gary, with your research about how babies respond to sugar. So what has science found about the brain's pleasure center and sugar? Well, and this is, like in many things, is a complicated story, but uh, researchers have known for decades that sugar triggers a response. Sugar consumption triggers a response in our brains in an area called the reward center, technically it's the nucleus accumbens, which is basically where we feel extreme pleasure. Um, and the idea is as part of our brain, you know, more or less evolved to um, reward activities that help procreate the species, so sex and food. And then addictive drugs just happen to be, by chance, these substances that trigger the same release of a, of a neurotransmitter called dopamine that is supposed to happen when we eat or, you know, when we make love, and it's supposed to happen at a sort of moderate low level, so we want to repeat these things. Um, But with drugs of abuse like cocaine or alcohol or tobacco, nicotine or heroin, they just kind of overwhelm the center. And it turns out sugar consumption has, you know, many of the same properties in the brain, but it's clearly different than these other drugs. Um, so you have this issue. We've always had this debate, and I, I have a good friend, a journalist named Charles Mann, a wonderful historian, too, who in a book he wrote called 1493, which talked about how food spread around the world after Columbus. He discussed the sugar industry, and I thought his sentence just said it all. He said people, the scientists debate amongst themselves whether sugar's an addictive substance or we just act like it is. Because we clearly act like it is. We know it's a psychoactive substance and that you can give sugar, as you noted, to babies. And we do it for circumcision ceremonies, you know, just a few days after birth in order to either either killing pain or distracting them mm-hmm. from the, the pain of the process. It's, it clearly has this effect. And we know with our kids that it's even the, the hardcore defenders of sugar in the world, and there are many who think of it as just this, you know, wonderful gift to mankind to make our lives, you know, to give a little bit of joy into these hard, uh, joyless lives that we live. Um, you know, you still with children, you've got a race in it. It's one mm-hmm. of it's perhaps the only thing. Yeah, you have to ration your kids. Except today, of course, now we have to ration screen time. So it's that's another right. conversation. As a parent, yeah, I'm a parent. I know you have you have two boys. Is that right? That's right. I'm sure that you have had that 
conversation over the years. <laughs> yeah. It's one we do constantly. And yet, and like I said, it's sort of what rationing sugar consumption would have been. Yes, exactly. You wouldn't have had to do it 150 years ago. We didn't have enough sugar. Yeah. We didn't have all these ways to... And worst of all, we didn't think of it as something that was harmless. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Gary, there are so many realizations in the case against sugar, you know, and one of the other things I really wanted to uh, get to was talking about the amount of money spent to promote a substance that both you and I believe harms our whole civilization. You know, it's really appalling um, I know it, it's a really a wise saying that says, you know, follow the money trail. And so maybe when we come back, I think we need to go to another break. When we come back um, from this break, we can talk a little bit more about that. And you can share, um, you know, a couple of those a couple of those money money trails with mm-hmm. us. That would be great. Let's take our quick break, though. You are listening to Dishing Up Nutrition And this is a shout out. If you're a nurse and you're listening and you need continuing education credits, um, whether you're in town or out of town (laughs) and you want to learn excellent nutrition information and just get it all done in one weekend, we're offering our weekend weight and wellness seminar. So it's 12 hours of um, education. It starts the evening of Friday, April 21st. It's going to continue Saturday and Sunday. April 22nd and 23rd. We actually had a woman fly in from Wales to take one of our weight and wellness weekend series in the past. And she's, she just loved it. She valued the information. She was amazed with the passion and teaching skills of all the educators and nutritionists. So nurses earn 14.4 CEUs. Um, organic snacks and lunch are provided. So call 651-699-3438 to register and you can get in on the early bird discount. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. We are pleased to have Gary Tobbs, author of The Case Against Sugar, join us today via phone to share his wisdom. Um, Here's an interesting fact from the book, The Case Against Sugar. In 1902, Coca-Cola was spending $100,000 a year on advertising. But by 1913, they were spending an amazing million dollars annually. So over the past 100 years, the advertising budget has obviously increased tremendously. And, of course, so have those sales of Coke. Well, and, <laughs> and this is, you know, I mean, this is the, the clearly the issue. We, I, again, I, in this book, I, I actually, I, I blame the research community more than I blame the industry because industry just does what it does, and that's try to match. Yeah, they make sales. money. <laughs> so right. just like the cigarette industry, and I talk about there's a clear link between even the the it's amazing that tobacco leaves happen to have a very high sugar content. I found that amazing. I did too. Yeah, it was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Yeah, so it's um, sugar. If, if I'm right, sugar kills us many more ways than, than, than we would have thought. But these products, be, 
you know, we just tend to think, I mean, we thought, thought that tobacco was, uh, you know, a healthful product that just helped us get through the hard times of life. And, you know, back 50, uh, 70 years ago, you would even have commercials for, you know, which cigarettes doctors recommend it. And sugar, the industry convinced itself it was benign, and the researchers uh, convinced themselves that it was benign and that dietary fat was the problem. We should all eat low-fat diets. And the, the industry just took advantage of it, and they took advantage of everything the world offered, including wars, to spread, you know, their products worldwide. I mean, back in after World War II, Coca-Cola had its first um, big conference to talk about, uh, you know, how to to use the the spread of of American forces worldwide to spread Coca-Cola worldwide. And there, there, there was a banner at the conference that said, you know, when the in the Soviet, in, you know, when we think of uh, the Soviet Union, we think of the, the Berlin Wall, and when they think of us, they think of Coca-Cola. And that's what we have to take <laughs> advantage of, and they just did. And then massive, you know, with the, uh, the advertisers and, and marketers got better and better at targeting, you know, our children, among other things, as, as sources for sugar-sweetened cereals and sodas and fruit juices, the industry capitalized that. And by the 1960s, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure this is what we consume. And if for those of, you know, they watch sporting events, what do we advertise? We advertise beer and... and, and um, beer and soda. And beer soda. and soda, now right. Exactly. Function drugs, which could be a product of the beer and the soda. <laughs> um, it's, you know, and we just, we let this happen. And now we're seeing the results and we have to mm-hmm. figure out what to do about it. And the first thing is, I'm sure, you know, as you're saying on the show, is we have to try and break this, this addictive need mm-hmm. that we have for this substance. We have to convince ourselves that we can enjoy life without, you know, the candy bars and the sweets right. and the sodas. So, you know, because it does get back to money, can you share one or two of what you refer to as the money trails as far as following the money trail? Well, this is... Um, you know, what happened again in the 1960s when we became convinced that, well, two things happened in the 60s. The, um, first of all, artificial sweeteners came in. Uh, that started in the 50s, and that was a real threat to the sugar industry because not only did artificial sweeteners not have calories and not have sugar in it, so people who were gaining weight in the whole country going on a diet by then you know, thought, I should have artificial sweeteners, but they were cheaper than sugar. So the sugar industry spent the massive amounts of money at the time to fund research to demonstrate that artificial sweeteners are bad for us and come up with anything they can. They eventually led to the FDA banning um, cyclamates, which was the primary form being used at the time, and they managed to taint the artificial sweeteners ever since with this idea that they're somehow worse than sugar, which I think whatever harm they might do, I would argue it's clearly not as much Mm -hmm. as sugar has done. And then we started to believe that dietary fat causes heart disease. So our research community got obsessed with this dietary fat story that I believe was just wrong. And the sugar industry, as a few nutritionists, the leading British nutritionists, started arguing that it was sugar and not fat. The sugar industry just started plowing money into the researchers who were studying fat and who believed it's fat. And these were very influential researchers at Harvard at the University of Minnesota, and they paid them to write reports and studies 
that said, no, 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 it's fat, it's fat, it's fat, it's not sugar, sugar's benign, it's British researchers are quack, don't listen to them. And by the 1970s, when um, the FDA decided they had to revisit this question of whether sugar was safe, they were using, depending on sugar industry documents, or documents funded by the sugar industry, they were arguing, you know, there's nothing wrong with sugar, it's all fat. And then, boom, then we put into... Uh, the government, our government gets involved and pushes this low-fat dogma that, that we've all been living mm-hmm. with since then. Oh, yeah. And I mean, we've been, we all, our clients daily are, um, they have programs in their brain that they need to be avoiding fat and yeah. eating low-calorie. Yeah, yeah, it's almost hard for us to believe we should eat something like full-fat yogurt. Mm-hmm. Right. We it's really like struggle that. with that, with trying to that's convince our clients. Yeah, and instead we, we consume these food like what Michael Pollan's wonderful phrase, food like substances, where so you take <laughs> the fat out, you dump high fructose mm-hmm. corn syrup and sort of fruit. Well, you're removing the flavor, right? Yeah, and well, Gary, I I wonder though, you know, you you really point out uh, very um, very well in the book about these researchers were just obsessed with the fact that fat is, you know, causing heart disease and that we have to avoid that. But did that research actually prove that fat caused heart disease? No, and that's, that's, that's the thing. That was one of the very first investigations I did back for the journal Science um, in the late 90s. So we came to believe that we have to eat a low-fat diet to be healthy, and that was an interesting idea. It was an interesting hypothesis, and the research community tested it in these trials that costed hundreds of millions of dollars, and they just failed to confirm it. It just happens to be wrong. That happens all the time in science. And in women, it seems to be particularly ill-advised advice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a study. They spent a half a billion dollars on a single study half a billion dollars to test the idea that a low-fat diet would make women live longer and be healthier, and it just didn't. Hmm. Yeah, the results were not there. (laughs) We can't get off this idea that we have. And the problem is if you remove the fat from the diet, you've got to replace it with something. And we replace it with these easily digestible, sugar-rich carbohydrates, and they're the ones that are far more likely mm-hmm. to be making us fat and making us diabetic and, you know, causing or increasing the risk of all these other awful diseases. So we have, I'm, we just have a couple minutes left. I think we have uh, two minutes left. I don't know if it's possible to briefly talk about the Ansel Keys story in that amount of time, but that um, he's actually, it was from the University of Minnesota, where we are. <laughs> Well, this is, you know, Ansel Keys was the most uh, dominant. He was the face of nutrition in America from 1960 through 1980. And he was a very ferocious researcher and individual who just convinced himself that fat was the cause of heart disease. And he happened to have a personal dislike for this British nutritionist who was saying it was sugar. And they battled back and forth, and, and Ansel Keys had the weight of the American funding community behind it, and he just managed, you know, with the help of other very influential people to convince the nation that fat was the problem and that we should eat these low-fat. And Keys would not have wanted us eating, replacing the fat with sugar. This is the kind of unintended consequence you have when you, you know, make these kinds of pronouncements, and it's what we did. 
So the, the key thing, again, is just, you know, we got off on some very bad ideas in the nutrition community. We're slowly working. The, the, the scientists are slowly getting back to where they should have been 50 years ago. But we're still stuck with this intellectual baggage from what they gave us, which is we have to eat a low-fat diet, or chicken breasts have to be skinless, or, <laughs> right. you know, and that it's, our yogurt has to be low-fat, our dairy has to be low-fat. Mm-hmm. And, and you talked earlier in the show about the kind of damage this seems to do to people. Yeah. Well, Gary, we could... You know, I wish we had three hours <laughs> right. or more to talk to you. I'm sure <laughs> that you're a busy man. We really, really appreciate you for getting up early and yeah. being such a thank wonderful you. guest. Well, and thank, thank you, you for much. writing yet another remarkable book. And we'd love to have you back in the future. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You know, our goal is to help each and every person have better health through eating real food. It's a simple but very powerful message, and we hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. If you enjoy this podcast, please share your favorite episodes with a friend or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. The content and opinions expressed are those of the hosts or presenters. They are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Product statements have not been evaluated by the FDA.